0: Chapter Twenty Two, Part One, of the Recording Angel by Edwin Arnold Brenholtz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kate Fallis. Chapter Twenty Two, the telling of it all by saint or scamp lets in a flood of light, old truths in new clothes, as fickle as February weather. Should be a proverb, if it isn't, thought Arndt, as he faced the keen wind on his way to the station the next morning. Robert had assured him that everything had been attended to that could be, and that he himself was very desirous to know what further revelations there were in store. So Arndt, who, after the previous day's experiences, and the excitement of hearing of the death of the President and his secretary, was feeling very much like doing nothing for a day or two, said that it would do him good to walk, and refused the use of the carriage. He had thought to use his pet, but concluded that, although she showed no ill effects from the race of the preceding day, he would let her rest. Jeanette was Arndt's one extravagance. Years before, while walking on a Sunday afternoon in the country with Nettie, she saw the animal then but a colt, frisking in the pasture, and both of them admired her so much that Arndt invested a good portion of all he had then saved in purchasing her. Jeanette was one cause of Arndt's unpopularity with the men, or rather had been when the strike began, for they insisted that it was aping the rich for a working man to own such an animal as Jeanette had proved to be. We consider every man's extravagance unjustifiable, but our own. Arndt stuck by his pet, and she showed in a hundred ways that she loved her owner. Jeanette apparently has nothing to do with the strike, yet it was the comradeship of the man and the brute that first attracted Mr. Endy to Arndt, and finally made him trust him so entirely. We are too prone to accept the visible causes of things as the real causes— and we do it oftentimes because of their largeness or nearness as arndt walked briskly along he was thinking of the petty meanness of the rich men who had dragged his friend jack cassidy cripple as he was, to Washington to testify before the strike commission appointed by the President as to Arndt's owning and supporting Jeanette, and of how their well-fed attorneys had harped on that fact as demonstrating the baselessness of the claims of the strikers. The thought of Jack in his crippled condition caused Arndt to look at his watch, and finding that he had time to spare, he went several blocks out of his way to drop in at the little newsstand where he, with Mr. Endy's aid, had set up Jack in business. By the time he reached the place, he was chilled through and was glad to stand by the stove and chat for a few moments. And in the course of the conversation, Cassidy said, By the way, Ar't I want you to put this paper in your pocket, and when you get time, read that little piece in fine print down in the corner that I have marked." It is certainly curious how those capitalistic sheets manage to give, and yet not give, the news that reflects on the doings of the rich. I marked it for you because of that. Arndt was obliged to hurry to catch his train, and when he was comfortably seated, he took out the paper and read, Some curious developments in the Hotches will case. Our readers will probably recall the noted case of Robert Hotches, in which he, the testator, cut off his heirs with as little as the law would allow, and bestowed all the remainder in trust to the cooperative commonwealth, whenever it should be established either in this country or in other lands. The case was taken by him on a feigned issue to the courts during his lifetime, so that litigation after his death might be prevented. The courts decided that the will was perfectly legal, Then his natural heirs attacked his will on the ground that he, the testator, was not of sound and disposing mind. The old gentleman was evidently prepared for that, and during the first day of his examination by the court gave unimpeachable evidence of his sanity. To the surprise of all, the second day completely established the contention of his heirs, and he was immediately sent to a private sanitarium, where he yesterday killed himself, thereby disclosing the fact that a minute opening had at some time in the past been made through the skull, and through this opening evidently by means of a hypodermic syringe, some solution, which afterward hardened on the brain, was injected by some person or persons at present unknown.' It is probable that when the substance which has been pressing on the brain is analyzed, the detectives may have some clue as to the perpetrators of the crime. At all events, it is a remarkable coincidence that Mr. Hotches should have fallen a victim to such an outrage at just the moment his heirs were trying to prove his mental unsoundness. But the wealth and social standing of those who now inherit his millions and lands place them beyond suspicion.' "'Arndt smiled sarcastically "'when the last sentence was finished, "'and he carefully folded the paper "'and placed it in his pocket, "'saying to himself, "'I wonder if Arthur has seen that. "'If not, I have a surprise in store for him.' "'This early express being the train "'on which the rich and well-to-do "'traveled from their suburban residences "'to Clyde, "'was luxuriously appointed, "'and made excellent time.' and Arndt settled himself comfortably to rest and sleep if possible, for he had not been able to sleep much the night before. But even now his thoughts ran riot. He gave up the effort and glanced about the car in search of someone he knew to whom he could talk. There were several of the men who had been at the meeting, but they had not even noticed him when he entered the car, and he would not have cared to talk to them in any event. Finally, he glanced immediately behind him, and was pleased to see Hubert, the poet and novelist, seated there. He was well acquainted with him, and immediately said, "'Come over here, will you? I would like to chat with you. I have a question or two to ask you. Fire away!' Said Hubert as soon as he was seated, But you always want to remember that I am liable to use you and whatever you say as material. We writers run short of material every once in a while, you know. This was said laughingly, but Arndt replied, In all seriousness, that is the very thing I want to talk about. Now, see. I have almost given up reading modern fiction and poetry. And why? The poetry is beautiful, it is polished until it dazzles the senses, it is chaste and refined, but it does not report or represent the life of the world I, nor anyone I know, live in. It's very polish and refinement is its bane." It does not talk a word of the workers' language. From a business standpoint, I suppose that such writing is commendable, since the workers are not in a position to buy poetry, no matter how written. Their pockets are empty, their larders are bare, and their brains have been dulled by incessant toil until poetry, unless it be of the harsh and rugged kind to which you deny the name, is frankly beyond them so I let the poetry pass. But look at the prose, especially the fiction. What do I find in real life? Take Yesterday, for instance. You know its terrible score of prominent men whose lives ended in this small scope of country, and within its twenty-four hours. That is the fact. There is your material. Where do I find its counterpart in fiction?' Hubert smiled at him and said, No doubt, no doubt. I used to do that sort of thing, wrote poems that stirred your heart and told of things that actually happened. I have several of what I still call my best works, nicely typewritten and bound and carefully stored away. Some day, when you have time, call around and I will let you have one of them to read. They are just as easy to read as print, and I have no objection to an appreciative person who is honourable enough to not steal my ideas, reading and enjoying them. Fact is, I would like to convince you that I, at least, do write real life in some of my fiction. It is true, there is little of the genuine article in my published works. You can't tell me anything about that.' and the exasperating thing about it is that I know the works would be read if some prominent publishing house would print and circulate them, but although my works are popular, they won't, for their critics would immediately cry out against the occurrences of yesterday that they were not art, and that their presentation destroyed the artistic quality of the book." see and the worst of it from your point of view is i suppose that the critics and the public between them have convinced me and now i turn out literature well here we are almost at clyde arndt with the ardour of a new convert said and yet they assert that the socialist state would be the death of art. It seems to me that what you have said is a confession that the life the capitalistic state brings about is so inartistic that you cannot truthfully portray it, and at the same time turn out artistic work. Socialism, art or no art for me. Had Arndt been keeping up with Hubert's latest work, he would not have been surprised when the silver-tongued poet arose and hastily picked up his coat, saying, Permit me, sir, to retract that invitation. I do not consider a socialist trustworthy, or a gentleman. They had reached their destination, and Hubert left without saying good-bye. As Arndt followed him out of the car, he said to himself, Phew! slap in the face number one nice outlook and he was sympathizing with the men who have patiently endured that sort of thing all through the years for one despised cause or another until he arrived at chandler's office The earliest possible moment of opening the outer doors found the three men at the deposit building, and their eagerness was such that they were astonished when they learned that after attending to all preliminaries, they had still several minutes to wait. Chandler said, Well, for once I've no use for time locks on vaults. Arndt, who was the most composed of the party, said, "'Nevertheless, there are splendid safeguards, "'and we can't always have things work our way. "'I have tried to think of a single thing "'which did not appear to work hardship to someone at times, "'and I cannot remember one. "'I try to never forget, especially when I am in a hurry, "'as true a thing as ever I heard. "'Namely, there is an eternity behind, "'and another ahead of you. "'A few moments will not matter.' "'That's the talk,' said Arthur, but I can't always remember in time. Neither do I, said Arndt. At this moment the time locks opened, and as the bolts flew back and the great doors that admitted them to where the smaller safes were stored swung open, each man found himself holding his breath. In a few moments the box was placed in their hands and they were conducted to a private room in the building. As they opened the lock, The lid raised slightly, and they all involuntarily drew back. Arndt, who was standing nearest to the table, said, We are somewhat nervous, are we not? And reaching across Chandler, who had just stepped up, he threw back the lid. Immediately on top were some typewritten directions for operating a certain talking machine. In large letters the heading said, this machine has never been patented inventor is dead letters of assignment of all rights to archibald chambers his heirs or assigns are hereto attached then followed special features of invention smallness lightness silent working capacity of cylinder exact reproduction of voice time switch by which cylinder commences to revolve either instantaneously or after 5, 10, 15, or 20 minutes, and pitch regulator, by which ordinary continuous sounds are not recorded, and a switch-controlling automatic repeater. Under this was another typewritten paper, headed Confession of Archibald Chambers, and under this was the wonderful little machine Every part of it showed by its perfection and beauty that it was the output of an expert who had delighted in his work. They said nothing as Arndt took it out of the box and placed it on the table, and then sat down and read the instructions for running it. When he finished, Arthur exclaimed, just what might have been expected. That man certainly had brains, and I am going to tell you right now that in spite of all Chambers may say or have said to anyone I know or at least feel certain that while others may have made the parts, it was Chambers himself that furnished the brains and assembled this perfect machine.' but let us hear what the instrument has to say, although I expect that I have already listened to some of it. While he was speaking, Arndt followed the instructions and unscrewed the electric light bulb from its wire and then attached the wire to the machine. Electric motor, exclaimed Arthur. By Jove, it would run forever. Either way, said Arndt, wind it up if you want to. A touch of oil here and there, and the machine was in running order, and again all hesitated to make the last move, but this time it was the detective who reached towards it and pushed the lever which Arndt had set for instantaneous action. Immediately there rolled through the room the sonorous tones of a voice which every man knew to be that of Mr. Craggy, and they all, in spite of themselves, looked towards the door. The delusion was so perfect that in listening to the voice and marveling at its strength, they had lost some of the words, for Arndt had set the machine for its loudest pitch and greatest speed. It had seemed not possible for so small an instrument to talk at all without the aid of a multiplier. He now reduced the speed and the volume and started it again and then every sense that could be brought to bear was concentrated on the words and the instrument. Arndt and Chandler were very quiet, and kept their gaze riveted on the revolving cylinder, but the detective watched the faces of the other two. As the talk suddenly stopped after the words, "'Anybody being killed?' Arndt said as he drew a quick breath. If he were not already dead, it would take even more money than a craggy ever had to save him, I think. All except Arthur were startled when the talk once more commenced abruptly, and then again suddenly ended at the same moment that there was a faint click. The cylinder stopped. Arthur sprang to his feet, exclaiming, By the Eternal! That clears up the last thing! That man ought to have lived! I need him in my business! Yes, said Arndt, it clears it up. He stopped where he did because he had to, and you never found it out, nor even suspected it. I never did, was the candid reply. Chandler was looking inquiringly at them. Arthur had not gone into details about Mr. Craggy's experience with Chambers while telling the story in the car. He had spoken much more freely to Arndt the previous night. When he saw Chandler's look, he realized that the lawyer was still in the dark. So they sat there with the silent machine on the table before them and the unopened confession on the lid of the box, while Arthur told again of the way that Chambers had driven the President to the verge of distraction. But he said nothing about the actual plan of Mr. Craggy for controlling Mr. Endy, and the others understood that having heard it in the way he had, he would never be at liberty to reveal it. So Chandler listened carefully and without interruption, until he told about the receipt of the daily letters from the Confederate on the outside, and then Chandler lifted up his hands in astonishment and appeared to be speechless. His companions gazed at him in wondering silence for a while, and then Arndt remarked, It might be just as well to tell us all about it, Harry. If you need any assistance, say so. Well, I do, and if it were anybody but Chambers that had done me in this way, I should never admit it, not even to you. But the fact is that he had no Confederate on the outside, so far as I know, unless you look on me as one. I expect that I wrote every one of those letters, sealed and mailed them myself, and there wasn't a word in any one of them but letter received, not even a date or signature." "'How on earth did he ever get you to do it, "'and you with your experience with criminals?' said Arthur. "'Then Chandler narrated all his dealings with Chambers, "'and when he had finished he added, "'I said the last time he was at my office, "'and I say it again, "'that man is too smart for me. "'Only, gentlemen, with your permission, "'I will change the last word.' "'By all means, yes, sir,' said Arthur. "'Make it us.' they were recalled to the confession by Arndt's words. After all, and in spite of his rascality, I liked Chambers, and he added with a sigh, I am sorry for him. I confess that I do not understand him at all. Let us see what he has to say for himself. Arndt handed the paper to Chandler to read, and they all leaned back in their chairs waiting for him to begin. But he sat with the open paper before him and stared at it, and at last he said, below his breath, That man is better dead than living. He was too smart. Begin, said Arndt. Without any explanation of his remark, Chandler said, Confession of Archibald Chambers To the three men who will first read this confession, Gentlemen, I am risking having the laugh on me one time, but as I will not be present to hear it, that one time will not matter. I think that there will be three of you, since you are all alive at the moment of this writing, which is two o'clock of February 18th. The very afternoon he visited my office the last time, interrupted Chandler. The very afternoon the President set me on his trail, said Arthur. Chandler resumed. I feel confident that Mr. Arthur will be of your number, and I would place his name on the power of attorney, only it seemed useless. Being a detective, he will probably by this time know more of my doings than anyone but myself, and I want to clear up the few points that are, I presume, obscure to his mind.' I hope that he has enjoyed tracking me as much as I have enjoyed fooling him and all the others. He will appreciate the fine points of my work more than most men, and I hope that he is now present as you read this. He will probably be the man to arrest me, and so one of those to see me die, and I want his testimony to confirm my words that I embraced the quietness brought by the greatest friend of man as a lover accepts the offered kiss of his sweetheart passionately, thankfully. Of course, I killed myself. When I put that long, slender, bright brown cigar of craggies into the compartment in my case, where you will find that my short, thick black ones will not go, I forced it firmly on to the lance-shaped spring concealed there, which pierced it, and at the same time, injected the poison into the scar. As soon as I bit off the end of the cigar which I swallowed, forgive me for speaking in the past tense, I feel that way. I knew that everything had worked satisfactorily. With criminals working for selfish ends, Arthur and the other detectives are all right, but they stood no chance with me. Arthur played into my hands finely, or at least I know he will. I suppose that Mr. Craggy is now in prison. I hope so. "'I want to give him a chance to experience some things. "'I want to give him a good scare. "'I want to teach him how the inside of a jail feels to a man "'who is innocent of the particular crime with which he stands charged. "'I hope that no personal harm has come to him at the hands of the mob. "'Some years ago I would have rejoiced at such a termination of it all, "'but not now. "'I have no desire that others should be involved in his punishment.' Still, it has to be risked, and if things turn out that way, you can console yourselves, even as I do, by the thought that on general principles he deserves all he will ever get. But I prefer that he shall die some other way. There is an ideal executioner for Mr. Craggy. I am acquainted with him. I want to clear myself of one thing. It is a matter of keen regret with me that Mr. Endy has had to suffer so much— that was entirely unintentional. He is a good man, but he has had all the pleasures which wealth could bestow throughout his life, and he has had an exceptionally pleasant time. He had just embarked on a course which, to my mind, was and is certain to bring him worry, trouble, and defeat for his most cherished project. I think that the strikers themselves will eventually wound him deeply, I have no faith in their gratitude, and in any event they must sooner or later enlist in the socialist ranks. That would hurt him sorely. On the other hand, he is deluding himself with the hope that the rich will rally to his aid. As you will learn later, Mr. Craigie has worked out just such a scheme to head off socialism when the day comes that he must commence to make concessions. I need scarcely say that, being his, it is not in the interest of the men. Some such thoughts were in my mind when I went to the Endy mansion that night, after reading the words of Mr. Craggy, which placed him completely in my power. But at first I thought only of grasping the opportunity to bring to an end the task I had set for myself, and I did not then think of any man's suffering— I fully expected that Mr. Endy would not suffer, and as much as I intended to give him as peaceful and quiet a departure as I have secured for myself. I felt that he might just as well step down and out then as at any time. You know, when one has to live daily with a man who thinks nothing of forcing men to strike, well, knowing that many innocent women and children will necessarily starve to death one is bound to become reckless in regard to the life of a single individual. Well, I expected to find Mr. Andy asleep, and in that event he would simply have continued to sleep forever, which is probably easier and better than nature will now do for him. But he awoke as I was leaning over the bed and grappled with me, and then, because my work was not finished, I had to grapple with him and defend myself. He is a brave old man, He never cried out until I struck him. I am sorry for him. Sorry for every moment of suffering I caused him. Mr. Craggy was the cause. I shall make Mr. Craggy pay for his suffering and my regret. A few more words in explanation of that act. I will say that for ten mortal years I have been under sentence of death and daily suffering physical tortures almost unendurable, and that, because I would not sacrifice my keenness of intellect by using opiates— There have been many hours when, had the power been mine, I would willingly have depopulated this globe at a stroke in order to end my own sufferings and that of others, and would have considered that act the most merciful one ever performed. Such was my mood that night. End of chapter 22, part 1 of 2